0: Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne. Want to learn how to make delicious cheeses in your own kitchen? It's easier than you think. Our guest this week is radical natural cheesemaker David Asher, author of The Art of Natural Cheesemaking, using traditional non-industrial methods and raw ingredients to make the world's best cheeses. And now our conversation with David Asher. Well, David, um, I'm wondering uh, your background, actually. What, wh- where, where are you, and uh, how did you get started uh, making uh, cheese? So,
1: uh, I'm based in, in British Columbia, uh, on the far west coast, uh, on a little island. I've been farming there for a number of years, for about uh, seven or eight years, and uh, farming organically on a small scale, growing vegetables uh, for farmers market and for a CSA. And uh, cheesemaking has sort of fit into the full circle picture of uh, of my farming. And uh, it was uh, it was sort of serendipitous that I that I that I that I I came across a cheesemaker who was making uh, cheeses in a small scale uh, in her own home kitchen. Uh, in a sort of guerrilla cheese making style uh, without using any uh, store-bought ingredients, just uh, using a broken down old refrigerator as a cheese cave. And I, I, I realized that I could probably do that. Like, I didn't really realize that some cheese making was something that you could, you could really do at home. But seeing her uh, make uh, amazing cheeses in her own home kitchen really inspired me to try my hand at it. And I took that spark with me back to the farm and got some milk from my neighbor's goats and tried my hand at it. and was amazed
0: at the transformation. And I started getting more and more into it. Well, your your book is actually very different than the cheese making books that we had in our library. It's and a great book. Yes, yeah, by really, the way. It's,
2: it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Beautifully too. done. Very
0: much. But um, you have an example in the book actually about the difference between contemporary and traditional ways of making Camembert, which I thought kind of illustrated your approach really nicely. Um, what, what's the difference between those two ways of making that that particular cheese?
1: So, yeah, the way I make cheese is indeed very different from what uh, the vast majority of cheesemakers practice in North America. Now, there's really only a few cheesemakers in. Um, in our countries, America and Canada, that are doing things in a the sort of natural, um, more traditional way that I practice, and uh, you know the 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 example of camembert uh, really does define very well how uh, how disparate these two um, styles of cheesemaking are. And uh, in the sort of standard cheesemaking practice in North America, um, when cheesemakers make their camemberts, the first thing they do is they pasteurize their milk to assure that there are no unwanted microorganisms in it that could uh, cause blemishes to grow upon the rinds of their camembert. If there was unwanted species of fungi in the raw milk, then they uh, might end up with spots of uh, blue or green or whatnot on their uh, white camembert cheeses. After their milk is pasteurized, they add to that milk um, a freeze-dried starter culture, a packaged starter culture from a a culture company like Danisco, which is actually a subsidiary of of DuPont. um, Uh, you know the world's one of the world's largest agribusiness and biochemical uh, multinational corporations, um, and then they add in also a freeze-dried fungal spore to help that help that cheese grow its white rind. So the starter culture helps the the milk transform into cheese, and then the freeze-dried fungal spore helps that Camembert grow a white rind. And all the while, the cheesemakers are having to practice a very Sterile cheesemaking in order to assure that uh, no other unwanted fungal cultures or bacterial cultures find their way into the into the into the cheeses as they're ripening, uh, because those could um, derail the cheesemaking process. And you know, cheeses that evolve from this style of cheesemaking can taste very good. You know, if the if the milk is good and the cheesemakers are very conscientious about the cheesemaking process, but there's something that's really missing from uh, cheeses made this way. And I, I believe that's really the, the soul of the cheese because the, the cheesemakers, when they're making cheese this way, they don't, they're not working with the, uh, the microorganisms that are actually in that milk. In fact, they're, 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 they're working against the, the microbes that are in the milk. They're pasteurizing, sterilizing, and then adding back these freeze-dried cultures and not allowing the, the milk to really express itself as it's transformed into cheese. Now, when a camembert is made in a more traditional way, Cheesemakers work with the milk raw. They do not pasteurize it. And, you know, most uh, camembert cheeses made in uh, in France are made with raw milk. And that raw milk has in it uh, all the microorganisms that cheese uh, really needs. And uh, when I make my cheese, I, I only add in, I only work with those indigenous microbes, saving some whey from a previous batch of camembert or using kefir as a starter culture, which has a very similar microbial uh, diversity to raw milk. And that Kefir or whey starter also has in it a fungal culture that's indigenous to raw milk that can help camemberts grow a white rind without having to add in any freeze-dried fungal spores uh, from uh, from Dupont. Uh, so, and all you got to do as a cheesemaker to encourage those cheeses to grow their white rinds is, after the cheese has been made, after the milk has been transformed into that w- little wheel of cheese and the the cheese has been salted and put away into the cave to age, all you have to do is wash down the rind of the cheeses once or twice with some salty whey to discourage any unwanted fungal cultures from growing on the cheese and to encourage milk's indigenous geotrichum candidum fungus to grow a beautiful white rind on the camembert. And all you got to do is do that, all you got to do is wash the rind of a cheese once or twice as it's aging during the, the first week it's in its cave um, and the cheese will grow a beautiful white rind without having to add in uh, any store-bought ingredients.
2: Now, why? Okay, why don't our Camembert producers wash their rinds? Why? Well, how did it get to this point where there's this discrepancy between, say, the French process and the American process? And just how did this all come about? Well,
1: in- interestingly, you know, I, I don't know if any. French cheesemakers are still washing the rinds of their cheeses to allow them to grow white rinds. It may very well be that French camembert makers are, are using the same sorts of industrial cheese. Oh, but make- with raw milk. Um, but you, they're using raw milk, but they're still adding in the, the freeze dried fungal spores. Mm-hmm. And this this to me is indicative of the of the idea that a lot of cheesemakers aren't you know have have lost the, the, the traditional methods uh, uh, with which you know camembert and other cheeses has been have been made for millennia. Uh, we, we distrust traditional methods in cheesemaking. Uh, we're fearful of the microorganisms that are in our milk. Uh, we believe that you know raw milk, as it comes from the udder, is supposed to be sterile. And any microorganisms that are in it are there as a result of contamination. And so uh, the idea of working with those microbes uh, is is not attractive to cheesemakers because it's believed that you can get a more predictable and more, more flavorful cheese if you use these laboratory-raised, single-strain packages of microorganisms, which are used you know, across the cheese-making world, both in North America and in the
0: Now, to get back to this on a home level, so you mentioned I'm going to either need kefir grain or I'm going to need uh, some whey, presumably from a previous batch. Now, right. what do you recommend people for home cheese-making do of those two methods?
1: I recommend... Uh, for a
0: home cheesemaker who's not going to be making cheese on a daily basis, right? Because you'd have to, you know, you'd have. It's like bread; you'd have to be making it daily, right, in order to use the way.
1: Yeah, I, rec- I recommend uh, keeping a, keeping a kefir culture because uh, you don't need to make cheese every day to keep the culture happy and healthy. You just need to feed the kefir culture on a regular basis, just like a sourdough bread starter. So you don't, you know, you, just like when you're baking sourdough bread, you don't need to bake bread every day. Uh, but you need to feed your sourdough starter in between your bread baking sessions to assure that the culture remains happy and healthy and vital and the same is true with the kefir culture with respect to cheese making in fact there's very many similarities between you know my kefir use in cheese making and sourdough starter culture in bread baking
0: so this is a kind of wild fermentation. then. Now, how and to help me with my nervousness here. <laughs> how often uh, does a batch go south or go wrong?
1: So you know, the main reason why a batch will go will go south is uh, because of the quality of milk, and this is one of the hardest things for startup cheesemakers to kind of uh, grasp: is that the quality of the milk is. Uh, for drinking is not the same as the quality of milk for cheesemaking. And, uh, you know, we can take a glass of, we can take some milk that's been sitting in the fridge, raw or pasteurized and drink it after it's been sitting in there for for two weeks and not have any ill effects um, from drinking it. But if you uh, take that same two week old milk and transform it into cheese, the cheese is going to have some really strange characteristics. Like all sorts of terrible things could happen to it um, when it's transformed uh into a into an aged cheese. And most of the problems that startup cheesemakers uh have it uh, you know is uh result from using milk that's you know not of a good enough quality. And if you're using a, a really good raw milk that comes from uh well tended animals that's fresh from the udder, you know, that hasn't been refrigerated for too long, cheese making is remarkably easy and there's very few things that go wrong with it. Um, if you approach it from a, a more traditional method, like the the, the style of cheesemaking that I teach,
0: but now of course raw che- raw milk is illegal in many places. So if I don't have access to raw milk, am I kind of out of luck, or can I work with? Uh, no, not at all. You're not you're not out of luck at all. The, the methods that I teach uh, work perfectly well with
1: pasteurized milk, um, and so long as the milk is freshly pasteurized, it will work too. Um, so, you know, if you're going to be purchasing milk from the grocery store to make this, to make your cheeses, um, just make sure that the milk is as, as fresh as possible. Um, find out what date the milk is delivered to your grocery store and, you know, purchase it, you know, that day or the day after it and make cheese with it as soon as you can. Because as milk sits refrigerated, it loses many of its best qualities. And it's hard for a lot of people to grasp this, but I, I like to explain it to people. That I like to make the, the comparison of milk to spinach. If yeah. <laughs> milk... Uh, you know, you, it, if spinach is sitting in your refrigerator for a, a couple of days, it degrades quite quickly. The, you know, the leaves wilt, uh, the flavor changes, the nutritional quality changes ra- rather rapidly. And the same is true uh, with milk. You can't, but you can't necessarily see the changes. But uh, milk that's three days old will respond very differently in the cheese making process to a milk that's uh, just one day old.
2: What about ultra pasteurized milk? I see that more and more on the shelves. Now you can't use that for anything, right?
1: Yes, unfortunately, um, uh, we, we're seeing very many milks in the grocery store today that are uh, really too processed to respond well to the cheese making process. Um, one of the milks that you know doesn't respond very well is ultra pasteurized milk. Uh, it does not work for cheese making because the high heat treatment changes the milk's character. It changes the milk's minerality and uh, the strength of its proteins. And the milk does not form strong curds. And it's very challenging to transform that milk into cheese. Uh, homogenization is another another processing technique that most milk in the grocery store is subject to that uh, ruins its cheese-making quality. Um, really, uh, it's very difficult to make cheese with these over-processed milks, but you can still use those milks to make kefir. Um, and I use homogenized milk or uh, ultra pasteurized milk. I even used um, UHT milk the other day to make some kefir, and it was actually quite delicious. Hmm. Um, but I, I would never use it to make cheese. It just it just would not work. W-
0: when you're working with the supermarket milks, what's different about the cheese making process, or or is it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I understand your question. Yeah.
0: working with raw milk that's from a well
1: well treated animal that's got access to pasture is a revelation. Uh, to anyone that hasn't worked with it before. And the main differences uh, with working with good milk, uh, that's fresh and, uh, and intact, is that it sets faster. So the curd actually sets in less time. And the curds, they firm up to the appropriate firmness in much less time than an equivalent pasteurized milk. So the cheese making process actually takes less less time. Uh, because the milk is more responsive to the cheesemaking process. Whereas uh, a pasteurized milk or a milk that comes from animals that weren't given as much pasture uh, will be a li- little bit slower to set, and the curds will take more time to firm. And so it's, it's kind of difficult to follow the same recipe uh, to make cheese with pasteurized milk and raw milk because the two milks respond so differently.
0: But otherwise, the process is the same, adding the or yeah. grains every, and everything.
1: Every single step that you would do is exactly the same. Okay. Milk, the difference is really uh, the timing.
2: Now, one thing I uh, liked about your book is that it covers a spectrum from what I would call easy cheese, <laughs> from easy cheeses for people who might be a little nervous about diving into, you know, a, a traditional rinded cheese. Uh, you know, but then there are also those, those uh, I might call them geek cheeses. You know, that um, you know, that if you get really into it, you can make these amazing creations. But I wanted to um, just to give people a taste of this. What um, I wanted to ask you to talk about easy cheese, like uh, I was intrigued with paneer, for instance, which doesn't need anything. Uh, you don't have to have rennet or any of those scary things, just, just vinegar, right?
1: Ingredients. That's it. That's it, really. All you need is milk and vinegar or lemon juice and a bit of heat. And if you uh, heat up milk to a pretty high temperature, uh, say above um, 180, 190 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, that's 80 degrees Celsius for Canadian listeners um, and uh, uh, add some lemon juice or vinegar to that hot milk. Um, the uh, milk proteins are destabilized by the high temperature and the acidity and they come out um, of their way and form these beautiful um, firm curds in an instant. And those curds can then simply be strained um, out of their hot whey and uh, uh, drained in cheesecloth in a colander and, Uh, In half an hour, they'll have firmed up into a beautiful uh, paneer that can be uh, used in all sorts of uh, delicious Indian recipes.
2: And it's also queso fresco, which I didn't know. It's the same thing.
1: Yeah, that too. Um, Queso fresco, panela. Those are two um, uh, Mexican style cheeses that are um, made using almost exactly the same recipe.
2: Are
0: there some other recipes in the book that you'd recommend people start with?
1: Yeah, for an, another wonderful beginner beginner cheese is one I call yogurt cheese.
2: Oh, yeah, we do that. <laughs>
1: made, made so easily just by taking a good quality yogurt. It's a yogurt without any uh, thickeners or stabilizers, uh, preferably one made from unhomogenized milk. And taking that good yogurt and straining it in cheesecloth and letting it drain its way. And as the yogurt drains its way, it slowly firms up into cheese. Uh, 24 hours later, you add some salt you let it drain for another few hours at room temperature and that yogurt will transform into a one of the most delicious cream cheeses you've ever eaten.
2: That is true. We've been doing that for a while, although not as we didn't know about the the salt stage. I just drain it and then smear it on things (laughs) but now i'm excited to try the salt part and i like that you call it dream cheese because i (laughs) (laughs) maybe because it's overnight (laughs)
1: because i used to make it in my pillowcase (laughs) You you can really hang it in almost anything
2: exactly okay what about rennet which is scary to some people and objectionable to vegetarians um, uh, although a lot of vegetarians eat plenty of cheese but, but let's talk about what is rennet and uh, why do we need it to make cheese and uh, are there uh, vegan rennets
1: so rennet is a, is a, is a uh, one of the most remarkably controversial ingredients um, in our in our food system it's a it's an ingredient that's necessary for making uh, certain styles of cheese. Most cheeses except for paneer and yogurt cheese uh, are made with rennet. Uh, It's an enzyme that helps milk separate into curds and whey and allows cheesemakers to transform their milk into cheese in a very efficient and um, effective way. And uh, cheeses like uh, chevre and Camembert and cheddar and Alpine-style cheeses, just about every, most of your, you know, favorite cheeses are probably made uh, with rennet. And uh, this enzyme that helps milk transform into cheese traditionally comes from the fourth stomach of a young calf that had to be slaughtered in order for cheesemakers to gain access to this enzyme that's naturally present on the young animal's stomach.
2: You've got to wonder how people ever figured that one out, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, <laughs> that's just strange. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: really, it's really, really strange. Um, it's a, it's the oddest ingredient that I, you know, regularly use. I've got some, you know, calf stomachs that I cut up into pieces and use them um, in my cheese making, and it's remarkable the, the, the magic of it. it. It, it, like this, 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 this piece of flesh transforms milk into cheese in a, in a, in a truly magical way. This ingredient, unfortunately. Um, you know, turns the stomachs of a lot of cheesemakers, uh, a lot of cheese eaters, uh, who uh, prefer to use non-animal rennets uh, in their cheeses. Um, and you know, by and large, in North America today, you know, only a very small fraction of cheeses are still made with this traditional calf rennet. Uh, most cheeses sold in grocery stores, even most artisanal cheeses, artisanal cheeses are made with microbial rennets, which are rennets that are Um, not derived from uh, slaughtered calves, but rather uh, microbes that are raised in bioreactors that produce rennet replacements, some more natural than others. There's a couple of these uh, microbial rennets that cheesemakers use. One of them is produced by a a fungal culture called mucor, and this fungus produces an enzyme that transforms milk into cheese, but the cheese that results is a little bit a little bit rubbery in texture. And if you age the cheese, the cheese ends up having this strange acidic bitterness in it as it ages. And it's kind of, it kind of makes your tongue go a little bit numb. And it's, it's not the best not the best character in a cheese. So most cheesemakers don't like to use this microbial rennet, but rather they, they've started using another type of rennet that is called fermentation-produced chymosin. Uh, it's actually the same chemical uh, that's present in calf rennet. But calves don't have to be slaughtered in order to produce it, because the enzyme is produced with the aid of genetically modified bacteria that have a gene inserted into them from a calf that allow them to produce this enzyme without having uh, to slaughter a young animal. But that, you know, brings up a whole <laughs> other,
2: other things. You
1: know. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, the, this other microbial rennet. Uh, lots of cheesemakers use it. There's plenty of organic cheesemakers that are using it. Small-scale cheesemakers. Uh, it's probably the, 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 the most common rennet that's used on a small-scale artisanal cheesemaking. The FPC, the GMO rennet, is what's used in most industrially produced cheeses uh, nowadays. Uh, it's the most common ingredient in supermarket cheese. Um, but even though, even the you know this other microbial rennet that small-scale artisanal cheesemakers use, uh, you know, it, even though it is free from GMOs, and so doesn't won't irk people in that way, that rennet, unfortunately, is produced by, you know, that same company, Danisco, which produces most cheesemaking starter cultures, which is a subsidiary of DuPont, one of the world's largest promoters of genetically modified agriculture. And so using that other microbial rennet that's not GMO still promotes GMO. And so for me, it's really challenging to, to, to encourage people to use that, that other rennet. You know, my, a, a calf rennet for me is the most natural, the most ethical. You know, it can be produced in a natural way. I encourage people to make their own as a recipe in my book, showing people how to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the animals are not being slaughtered for their rennet as well. Um, you know, they're not being slaughtered for their, for their meat either. They're not being slaughtered for their veal. Um, the animals that are producing calf rennet are being slaughtered for their mother's milk. Uh, there's no way to separate animal slaughter from dairy production, animals, cows that produce milk, goats that produce milk, have to produce uh, calves and kids as well. And most of those calves and kids aren't needed by the dairies, especially the unfortunate males, mm. uh, most of whom uh, you know, are slaughtered. Uh, it used to be traditionally that they would be raised for a few months on their mother's milk to produce veal uh, or suckling kid, although nowadays people aren't buying much of that anymore in North America. Uh, instead, dairy producers these days uh, either sell their young animals off to feedlots that fatten them up on soy and uh, transform them into hamburger meat for, for fast food joints, or uh, unfortunately they are forced to uh, slaughter them at birth because there's no market for the young animals.
0: And what's involved actually in making your own rennet from a calf? Uh, I know you said you have a recipe in the book, but what's the basic process of doing that?
1: The basic process of doing it is... Is a, it's a fairly it's a fairly long process. It's not that involved. There's only a few steps in making it, um, but it takes time to to cure the stomach. Uh, in order to produce it, one has to find an animal that's that's young, that's still still drinking its mother's milk, and is still producing an enzyme in its stomach that helps it digest its mother's milk. And this enzyme is, is the the rennet enzyme, the chymosin or chymosin enzyme, that uh, naturally transforms milk into cheese because young animals that drink their mother's milk can't digest it so much as a liquid so their stomachs turn them and turn that liquid into a solid so that the animal is digested better and if you find an animal that's still you know drinking its mother's milk it will still have that enzyme in it and uh so that animal has to be has to be slaughtered and uh, the stomach's ha- stomach has to be removed from the rest of the digestive tract and it's specifically the fourth stomach the abomasum as it's known that has the the chymosin enzyme in it that has to be separated from, um, from the entrails. And that stomach um, has to be emptied of its contents, um, the cheesy curds that are in it. And then the stomach has to be left to cure in salt for about six months um, in a cool, dark place. And after curing, uh, the stomach is then inflated with air, tying the the, the sphincter shut on either end in order to inflate it like a balloon.
2: A salty calf balloon.
1: (laughs) That's it. And then that calf balloon is, uh, calf stomach balloon is then left to dry uh, for a few weeks. And once dried, the vell, as it's known, uh, can then be used for cheesemaking. And all you have to do is cut out a very small piece, like less than a half inch square uh, to transform one gallon of milk into cheese. And that uh, small piece of uh, calf stomach just has to be soaked overnight in some whey or some water and that enzyme from the stomach is then you know absorbed into the water or whey which can then be poured in uh, to the to the milk uh, to help transform it into cheese
2: How long does the uh, calf stomach uh, last once you've once you've uh, made the uh, the balloon <laughs> and do you have balloons hanging in your house? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't have any currently. (laughs) This is the season for it, unfortunately. I haven't been on it um, because I've been traveling so much. Um, But um, uh, the stomachs, once they're dried and cured and inflated, uh, will last a remarkably long time, um, several years if they're kept in the appropriate
0: conditions.
2: So one will do you for a long time.
0: Yes,
1: yes, one will do for a very long time.
0: But now people don't want to don't do, that. do that. You do have a recommendation in your book, I know, for a, a rennet that is not Dupont.
2: <laughs> oh, the Cardoon? No, yeah. no, no, no. Oh, well, I, mean, I, I well, want to ask about that, that too. Yeah. there's
1: um... a recipe for that. We'll talk about that. But there there are a number of calf rennets, uh, naturally produced calf rennets that are available on the market oh, that wow. are excellent for cheesemaking. And uh, one brand uh, that I recommend is called the Walco Ren. Um, and uh, it works uh, just as well as the real thing.
0: Now, I was excited to see in your book a reference to cardoon, which is something that we have a lot of uh, sort of unfortunately <laughs> growing in our yard. It, it grows <laughs> like a weed. Uh, but uh, I was interested to see that that's, that's also a rennet, uh, the flower stems of it, right? Have you ever worked with cardoon flowers? Yeah,
1: I, I have. I've, I've uh I've worked with it a lot, and I've I've eaten a lot of cheeses and yogurts that are made with it. It's a uh, it's a natural enzyme produced by the the flowers. It's present in the the, the petals, I believe. Um, I'm not sure botanically which part it is. It's the it's the, the purple bl- parts. The purple parts, <laughs> yeah. maybe it, 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 uh, and these uh, purple flower um, petals are, um, are 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 cut off and dried. Um, and used as a coagulant for making a wide range of cheeses and fermented dairy products in certain parts of Europe and North Africa. Um, And uh, there's some cheeses that are made in Portugal that are made with cardoon rennet, though, that are quite delicious. And in Morocco, I didn't know this when I I lived there a number of years ago, but the yogurt that I ate almost every single day when I was in the country was set with cardoon rennet.
2: Huh, really?
1: Why it had... You know the peculiar flavor that it did and it's because it was made with uh with rennet
2: so it does it add a bitterness to the uh cheese or yogurt
1: i don't it's too it was too long ago for me to yeah. describe um to me to be able to describe the difference um but it's, the story is that if you use it for cow's milk if you use this particular uh cardoon rennet in cow's milk it will create bitterness in the cheese but if you use it for goat's milk or sheep's milk it will not
2: no,
0: I thought yogurt set on its own though, so I'm a little confused by that.
1: It does, it does, but the particular uh, texture and flavor that you get by adding even a small amount of rennet makes yogurt quite different, and uh, some people might say more interesting. Hmm. Wow, I got to try that.
2: Another thing I'm curious about is why cardoon flowers, or and not. Um artichoke I mean they're so closely related um, I, and I thought perhaps it's because people want to eat the artichoke flower <laughs> and those cardoons are just sitting around and so it might just be historically practical but have you heard anything about that
1: I, ha- I personally have not used a, huh. an artichoke flower in the same way they are very closely b- related botanically and uh, the flowers are almost identical to each other yes, yes. It's, it's likely they will work um, but I haven't. I haven't tried it, so I don't. There's, and there's a number. There's a number of other plants out there that do have a, a very similar effect on cheese, like fig latex and uh, um, oh, got that too, <laughs> and yellow bed straw, and a few other plants that are, are grown uh, for that reason uh, across Europe and Asia.
0: Now, uh, what other tools do I need for for just basic home cheese making?
1: You know, most most of the tools you need, you probably already have in your home, like. Uh, pots and strainers, a draining rack for draining your cheeses you can make out of a, um, a casserole dish and a cooling rack for baking. Um, just you know, setting the rack above the casserole dish will leave a nice surface that will allow your cheeses to drain. It is important that you have proper cheese forms in order to make uh, the particular styles of cheese that you want to make. So if you want to make a, a camembert, uh, you'll have to get an appropriate size uh, cheese form that will make a camembert, and so you can purchase these uh, these tools at cheese making supply uh, at cheese making supply shops uh, online, uh, or you can talk to a local potter about uh, commissioning a few uh, small uh, cheese forms for the purpose. And you know, traditionally, uh, that was the material that was used to make cheese. Whereas nowadays, the, the the forms that you get from cheese making supply shop will be primarily plastic. And you know, I personally am concerned about exposure of my food to plastic, and so I prefer
0: to avoid those. Hmm. Now we're in a hot climate here, and don't have a cave. So, what uh, what do I need to do to age cheeses that need aging at, at a lower temperature?
1: Well, very few cheesemakers these days actually use caves in order to in order to. <laughs>
2: Is there a cave shortage?
1: <laughs> I've, met, I've met quite a few cheesemakers who, uh, even in tropical areas, who uh, you know who who are are quite successful with their cheesemaking in uh, uh, in climate controlled caves um, in. Uh, Uh, In coolers that are built specifically for that purpose. Um, On a small scale, of course, you can use a a refrigerator, um, but a refrigerator typically operates a little too low um, in temperature and too low in humidity too, so you kind of have to hack its environmental controls. You can purchase um, thermostat overriders online that allow your uh, refrigerator to operate at a higher than normal temperature range, and you can leave out pans of water. Uh, with sponges in them to allow the uh, the water in the pans to humidify the the refrigerator um, to create the right conditions that cheeses need to age. Um, cheeses need uh, low temperature around between five and ten degrees Celsius. Um, that's forty and fifty degrees Fahrenheit. Um, about and uh, high humidities uh, about uh, eighty to eighty five percent. Uh, 80 to 90%, excuse me, um, in order to create the right conditions to age Jesus.
2: You know, I just thought that, this might be a, a place to use dying refrigerators. You know, if <laughs> you have ever had? Well, but you a fr- have to. It
0: has to be a dependable. Temperature, uh, it does have though. to. Be de- I yeah. was just
2: thinking, it, the, but there are there are fridges that like are on their last legs that are just a little too warm for food storage. You know, and maybe you know you could you could just give them a short second life until they kick the bucket entirely.
1: <laughs> there are plenty of plenty of such fridges out there being used to keep beer slightly cooler. Yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, they could also be used to make uh, to make cheese, and I've got I've got a refrigerator that doesn't quite keep it cool at home, and that's
0: what I use. Yeah. Uh, see. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, one one thing that's kept me from more we've we've done a few cheese making experiments, but I have whey guilt. Like, what do I do with all the leftover whey?
1: Well, it sounds like you've got a garden. Am I am I correct? Yes. Yeah. Now those cardoons would grow beautifully as. Well. <laughs>
2: They a- need no encouragement. <laughs> no, but we could use the way on other plants as a fertilizer.
1: You could use those as other uh, direct as a direct um, fertilizer, um, mm. direct liquid fertilizer to any on any plant in the garden. And I um, uh, have been using it for years um, in my garden plot, um, feeding you know nitrogen demanding crops like corn and greens and squash and other things.
2: Chickens, right? Do some people give whey to chickens?
1: Yeah, yeah. Chick- uh, whey is a wonderful nutritional supplement for chickens and other livestock. Um, chickens will peck away at, at whey all day. Uh, <laughs> uh, pigs will just lap it up before it's even poured out of the bucket. Um, and uh, you can even wean, you know, if you if you got animals, uh, if you got cows, if you're, you're producing your own milk, you can even wean your young calves off their mother's milk using whey. With lots of great, lots of great uses for it. You can cook with it. Um, you know, it's a great replacement for buttermilk and pancakes and oh. uh, and uh, other baked goods. Uh, you can use it as a replacement for water uh, when you're making soups or stocks or gravies. Um, you're cooking beans or, or grains. It adds a lot of flavor and nutrition to them. Um, so, all sorts of wonderful uses for it.
2: Um, no need to be guilty about the extra way. Oh, and you can make ricotta with it.
1: Yeah, and if you got the right way, and uh, not every way will work, but the oh. way from Rennet cheeses will. If you've got, uh, if you've got that sort of whey, all you got to do is bring it to a boil and add some vinegar, and that
0: whey will transform into a beautiful ricotta. Okay, so you've got me really excited about making cheese. Which, to be honest with you, I s- now we're in yeah, trouble. Yeah, we're in trouble. I, I kind of. <laughs> given up on it a long time ago <laughs> no but more hobbies yeah no, no more hobbies uh, <laughs> but once i get past the easy to make cheeses so there's some that you think i should graduate to or there's like an intermediate cheese. yeah an intermediate and then an advanced cheese
1: yeah so the the next one i would recommend uh is uh is a rennet cheese and that is uh that is chev and chev is a is probably the easiest rennet cheese to make and uh uh, a great one to begin with, and uh, it's not a it's not a cheese that needs to be aged. It's one that's ready in just a few days, um, and um, all you really have to do is get. And this is good practice for cheesemaking. Uh, is find a, a good source of milk, and it's important that you get good milk for making a chevre, um because if you get an over-processed milk, the the the, the process fails. Um, it's really important to go out and find um, uh, go out and find a a, a goat's milk that is raw and if it's not raw you have to make sure that it's unhomogenized so it hasn't had its its cream blended in Um, and once you got that good milk um, all you have to do is add some kefir just a small amount of starter culture you could even use some whey that's left over from a previous cheese like a yogurt cheese if you save some of that whey you can use it first as a starter culture too to that uh, milk you also add a small amount of rennet uh, just a tiny little dose of rennet the smallest little homeopathic Uh, dose of rennet. Um, Just a little crumb. Dissolve it in water and pour it in just after you add the culture. And then you leave that milk to sit out at room temperature, between 65 and 75 degrees Fahrenheit for 24 hours. And after 24 hours the milk, the goat's milk, will set into a beautiful silky white curd, almost yogurt-like in texture, but a little bit firmer. And all you have to do then is scoop that curd out of the pot and into some cheesecloth to let it drain and as the curd drains its way it thickens up into chev. and all it takes is about four hours of draining plus the addition of a little bit of salt and then another hour of draining for that milk for that for that curd to transform into a really delicious cheese probably the, the best chevre you'll have ever eaten
2: Um, Moving from specific recipes to just general cheese wisdom, since we've got you here, Mm. I wondered if you could settle a question I've had for a while, which is, what is the best way to store cheese? You know, just like not necessarily the cheese you're making, but store-bought cheese or whatever. Um, I think plastic wrap is a no-no, but I don't uh, know how to keep the cheese well.
1: Yeah, so... So the, the, the humidity is the big is the big concern um, for for keeping cheese, and uh, cheese needs to have the appropriate humidity in order to uh, in order to keep right. And if it's uh, too exposed to, to you know if, it's, if you're keeping it in the refrigerator and it's too exposed to air, the cheese will dry out. And plastic you know keeps the humidity in, but it it, it keeps too much humidity in to some extent and can cause the cheese to become too wet. Um, it can cause a cheese uh, to also taste like plastic because the, the flavors mm-hmm. of the plastic wrap can get into the cheese. And it, it kind of irks me a little bit. So I, I, I prefer not to use it um, to store cheese. What I will do instead, I'll still use a container. If you're going to keep cheese in the refrigerator, it does need to, you know, it doesn't, you don't want to have it exposed to the refrigerator, refrigerator air because the refrigerator air will dry a cheese out in an instant. So I do keep my cheeses generally in a container and I'll wrap my cheeses um, inside a a parchment paper or inside a wax paper keep them inside that container inside the refrigerator that way they're not uh, touching the plastic and getting the flavors from the plastic but still being protected um, from the refrigerator air by
2: should they be um, separated into their own like i'm imagining like like a little glass sort of tupperware type container and then the cheese is wrapped up inside that right Um, but if you've got several cheeses can they all be live in the same container together, or should they each be in their own container?
1: I, I, I'm a proponent of letting you know of uh, integrating uh, uh, cheeses into the same curing uh, <laughs> spaces and same aging spaces. And a lot, a lot of cheesemakers like to keep them separate to prevent contamination. But I, I believe it's less of a concern than it needs to be that a properly made cheese won't actually become contaminated by its neighbors. That lots of different cultures and cheeses can get along well in the same area. As so long as like they're well treated, a cheese once it's you know once it's cut into and once it's uh, you know being once it once it once it's cut and it's like it has a new skin that's created by the cut. That new skin of the cheese is is prone to contamination, um, and uh, you may find you know spots of typically spots of blue or white growing on that new exposed edge of the cheese, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, you don't need to be concerned about that. Cheese is And you don't need to separate different styles of cheeses in order to prevent that from happening. That's going to happen regardless. There's wild microbes in the air around us that, uh, you know, are responsible for degrading our food. That also, if they find their way into a cheese, will, you know, degrade it as well. That's, you know, the fungus that makes cheese blue, Penicillium rock 40, is a common household fungus that rots fruit and bread and such. And if a little bit of that finds its way onto your cheese, it's not going to contaminate it, um, but it will slowly change it. And that fungus, as it grows on the edge, you know, will change the flavor of the cheese, make it taste a little bit more blue, um, and uh, uh, will give it some different qualities. But there's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, if, you know, like my cut sliced cheddar grows a little bit of blue on the edge, I'll actually relish that because it ends up having a flavor more like a, uh, like a stilton. <laughs> you know, common wisdom is to cut off the, you know, the, the cheese that's, that has a little bit of fungal growth on it. But fungal growth is entirely natural to the cheesemaking process. And uh, cheese that's properly salted and properly aged will only grow uh, non-toxic.
2: That's good to know. I think people, we, you know, I think Americans particularly, we have a deep, deep fear of, of well, mold.
0: You, you talk about it, David, the fear-based cheese culture. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah, the whole, or, yeah. But every, I mean, you know, if people... We have just no tolerance for any sort of like, you know, someone finds, I don't know, like a scrap of mold on the end of a loaf of bread, the whole loaf goes or the same thing with the cheese, you know, your cheddar in the fridge has gone white on one side, people might just get rid of the whole thing out of fear. So it's good to know that those bacteria that appear on the cheese are cheese bacteria, not alien deadly bacteria that will slaughter you and your entire family. (laughs) You know, yeah. So you can, you know, live with them or trim them off. Um, either way, it's going to be all right.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's something to, you know, something to, to appreciate, something to celebrate is that, you know, cheese is is not something that you can keep perfectly stable. Um, cheese will change over time. And it will grow fungi on it. And one of the, you know, cheesemakers' biggest chores is preventing fungus from growing on it. Um, now, that fungus isn't necessarily toxic to the cheese. It doesn't affect. Though it it does affect the cheese's flavor, cheesemakers generally just keep the fungus off of the cheese for aesthetic reasons. Um, It's usually just they don't like it; they don't like the looks of it. Uh, And I think it's something that we can really learn to appreciate. Uh, My favorite cheeses, and a lot of you know artisanal cheesemakers' favorite cheeses, are ones that are you know intentionally uh, intentionally cultivated with these fungal cultures that help develop much more interesting flavors in their cheeses.
0: And you have some amazing pictures in your book of those sorts of cheeses. Well, lastly, I want to. I'm just curious about the cheese scene in Canada. Um, you know, is raw milk legal there? What's the raw cheese scene? What's your thoughts about the future for cheesemaking in Canada and cheesemaking in the U.S.?
1: Now, uh, the cheese scene in, in Canada is quite similar to the cheese scene uh, in the United States. The raw milk scene is different, um, and uh, as well as a difference between uh, most of Canada and Quebec, which is essentially another, another country with respect to its uh, mm. its milk and cheese regulations. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but um, uh, Canada and the United States, we both have regulations that, that control raw milk sales in certain jurisdictions. Uh, in the United States, I don't know, around 50% of states allow raw milk sales in in some, to some extent whether it's directly from the farm or at uh, a farmers market or at, uh, or actually at the grocery stores um, in a couple of a couple of cases if the milk is produced up to a very high standard of quality to be sold raw and that's the case in Pennsylvania uh, and in uh, California and a few other states uh, where raw milk can be sold um, in grocery stores. Uh, in Canada, raw milk sales are illegal across the board. It doesn't matter where you are, it uh, doesn't matter uh, where you're buying it from. It doesn't matter how the milk is produced. It uh, doesn't matter if the milk is tested for illness or not. doesn't matter if the animals are treated well. Uh, raw milk is considered dangerous, and uh, the public is not allowed to have access to it. And farmers uh, who uh, attempt to sell it to the public or make it available to the public uh, will find uh, themselves in financial ruin because of the court battles that they have to fight um, in order to you know, uh, continue to do what they want to do. And there's a few farmers in Canada who have really been putting up a fight um, uh, and uh, I really respect what they're doing. Uh, when it comes to cheese, our, um, our, our, uh, our cheese-making regulations are very similar to those in the United States. Uh, cheeses have to be, uh, if they're to be made with raw milk, they have to be aged a minimum of sixty days in order for them to be sold raw. So you cannot make a cheese like a chèvre or a mozzarella or any fresh cheese aged, aged less than sixty days with raw milk. And that's the same across the border. Uh, the exception is Quebec. Interestingly, uh, in Quebec, um, legislation was uh, uh, approved recently that allows cheesemakers to produce uh, their traditional raw milk cheeses. And Quebec has a really long, outstanding uh, cheesemaking tradition that dates back to you know it's, it's French colonization. Um, and uh, uh, in Quebec, cheesemakers are uh, now permitted to produce raw milk cheeses aged. Less than 60 days, and some cheesemakers there are making some uh, exceptional examples of uh, of traditional uh, raw milk, raw milk cheeses uh, that are only aged just 15 or so days, and uh, they're wonderful, um, and uh, really uh, amazing to see that this, you know, this this province is, is producing them. It's the only place in North America, and uh, the standard of production is very high, and there's you know there's there's no concern of illness from that uh, from the raw milk that's produced
2: uh, under very high, uh,
1: uh, very high standards of production.
0: Well, David, I really want to thank you for being on our podcast.
2: Oh, yes. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you
1: very much for having me.
0: That was David Asher. David teaches classes in Canada, the U.S., and will be doing a tour of the United Kingdom in 2016. To find out more about his classes, visit his website, The Black Sheep School of Cheesemaking, which you can find at theblacksheepschool.com that's theblacksheepschool.com to leave a question for the root simple podcast call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at, rootsimple at gmail.com. we are root simple on twitter you can have our podcast automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on stitcher and if you like what you hear please share this podcast in social media You can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website, which is rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening.